I, the first Malduino I ever made looked awful, looked like Frankenstein's monster, and it took me an hour to make. I almost cried <laughs> looking at the final product because of how awful it was. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to the next Security Tools podcast. Today, we're going to talk to Jaunty, aka Satanic, about his YouTube channel and also the hardware he makes, and a little bit about what it's like to build hardware for the hacker community. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm delighted to be on. So for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with what you do, can you tell me a little bit about how people might know you? Sure. So I'm, uh, well, my name is Jaunty, but I'm much better known as Satonic, the guy on YouTube that creates loosely hacking related content. So I create content on security, on um, IoT, on um, hardware hacking, just really anything that piques my interest, but that usually happens to be security related. So we were actually supposed to meet at uh, the Chaos Communication Congress uh, because we are connected through a mutual friend who was on the podcast previously, uh, Stefan. And uh, unfortunately, we weren't able to, uh, but it's good to be able to catch up. Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> I got a, I got pen tested a few days uh, beforehand and uh, someone, I, I presume this is how it happened. Someone managed to get away with my passport somehow. Uh, ex extremely frustrating. Uh, seeing as I only really figured out on the day I was meant to travel. Uh, but yeah, I, I can only assume the passport got swiped um, a few days ago whilst I was um, out doing my Christmas shopping. Yeah, no, frustrating. Yeah, so I had the experience of going to uh, Chaos Communication Congress and finding that no one, uh, actually not no one, maybe three or four people had ever seen my YouTube channel but the whole time we were there, people kept coming by and asking if you were there. Uh, so your really? your channel's super popular, yeah, in in Europe. Mm. It's it's funny because at DefCon I can't go to the bathroom without someone being like, "Hey, I was in the Air Force and I saw your channel and it was great." And I was like, "Thanks," <laughs> uh, but like not a single person recognized me. But it seems like tons of people in Europe like have seen your stuff. So um, I, can you tell me a little bit about um, how you got started creating content and then how your channel got to be uh, as large as it, as it is now? Just first off, that's, that's slightly surprising. I, I don't know. I, I figured people would um, recognize you. But um, I mean, one of the things I always find when I go to C3 is that I'll be on a bus, not, not even at the event, but I'll, I'll be on the bus and then someone will recognize me. And it's, <laughs> at first it's always, it was, it was a little awkward, but then I, I kind of went into it and I started enjoying it uh, to a certain degree. That I find the most awkward thing is when people recognize you, but they don't say anything. So you're just walking <laughs> down the corridor and someone will give you what, what seems to be like a dirty look and you're just, just a bit, you know, just a bit kind of put off. <laughs> if I'm out anywhere, again, you know, it's, you're, you're absolutely fine to come up with me, come, come up to me if you, if you recognize me, but um, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the looks, the looks will, will throw me off. But, um, but yeah, so uh, in regards to the YouTube channel, I started off, I think it was late, late 2016 when um, I finished school and I was going to go to university, but I put that off a year and I'm the kind of person that can't really sit idly by doing nothing. So I just kind of started fiddling around with, uh, with Arduinos and I figured out how to make a, a light blink eventually. And um, it kind of went from there. I discovered the USB rubber ducky and then I thought it would be cool to kind of do the same thing, but with an Arduino. So I documented that, that um, whole process on YouTube, posted a bit on Reddit and it took off. People started following the project. And then I just started branching off and making other kinds of videos on other security related things. Sometimes I do videos on um, 
what's in the news, just what something I find interesting, Raspberry Pi stuff. It, it's all a massive mismatch of, of things. But the nice thing about security content on YouTube is that not many people really make it. So I don't feel beholden to doing one kind of thing because that's that's the format I've gotten used to. I just like to kind of wander by and do, do a bunch of different things, anything that interests me. What kind of content do you find that people respond to most or what, what are your most popular types of formats? Sure. So I, I think the hardest thing um, as, a, as a content creator on YouTube, from my perspective, one of the hardest things is balancing content that I like making and content that garners a lot of views. Being that YouTube is kind of, it's, it's not my only source of income, but um, a lot of the other stuff I do depends on the YouTube thing. So I have to think about the views and the, the videos that get them the most attention are the ones that um, I guess are more simple are more, I don't want to say skiddy, but um, are aimed more at people who are very new, only have a passing interest in, in security and quote unquote hacking and electronics. And they, they'll be browsing YouTube and they see a title which, which catches their eye and then they'll gravitate towards that. Whereas some of the more in-depth videos, like one of the videos I've, I most enjoyed making was one of the very first videos I, I made and it got almost no views, but um, it's a bit of a tangent, but it's it, it was an amazing <laughs> video. There's a scene in, I think it's the first season of Mr. Robot where Romero, I think it is, gets raided by the FBI and they, they find his computer, mm. but the com before they can get into the computer, it self-destructs. I love that and scene. It's one of my I, favorites. I, <laughs> I wanted to recreate that in a in a, in a in a in a way, and I figured the best way to do it was well to um, look at the hard drive or the SSD, you know, the place where the data is stored. And um, I I got an SSD, I wrapped it in thermite, and then I gutted out a CD drive and stuck it in that. And of course, it uses SATA, so it doesn't arouse any any suspicion on just looking at it. But <laughs> the whole the whole idea is is that once it's armed, and you can arm it by pushing the eject button on the uh, the CD drive. Um, once it's armed and when you, it's got an accelerometer in it. So when you move the computer, the thermite would be ignited by a, by a motor, which triggers a jet lighter to ignite the thermite. Simple, but effective. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, it, it, it was great fun. And there I was in my backyard in, um, like, this is London. So it's a, the, the gardens are very small and the neighbors could like, you know, see what I was doing. So, <laughs> um, uh, so I was in my backyard, a cold November, November day, and it just, went up in flames. I was super scared. I had my hose there. I was just spraying it with water. Which is super good for fires uh, with thermite. Oh yeah, no, that's not a good idea. <laughs> like, like, that's not, it's all I had. If, if people don't know, thermite is so hot, it can actually burn underwater because it has its own oxygen source. But that's all I had. And, and it worked um, to my surprise. And uh, obviously I did it when my parents weren't home and uh, they, they found out eventually they weren't too happy. But um, but yeah, that that turned into a career, surprisingly. So you know. So that video, you, do you did a video with this? Oh yeah, oh yeah. No, it's if you go on my channel and sort by oldest, I've got a cut. There's a couple build videos I made documenting how I built it. But then there's the uh, the test video which I made. This was almost three, two, three years ago, I believe. And a video of basically creating like a super spy way of destroying your hard drive or just creating a huge fire in your house. Uh, that got not so many views compared to something that's just like more general or something maybe for like someone switching careers or just passively interested in cybersecurity. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess the crux of it is, can you explain your concept well enough in a thumbnail and uh, like 10 words? 
because you know that's what people have to go on when they click on a video. They have the thumbnail and then they have the title. And for me to explain, you know, what, um, what that video is, it takes a good 30 seconds, which is not great for the algorithm. In fairness, it was one of the very first videos I made. So I wasn't very good at uh, titles and thumbnails back then. But yeah, I mean, even even nowadays, the very the very simple videos that, that have a larger audience, those will garner the views. And every now and then, I guess I have to, I feel like I have to do one of them to um, to get views and, you know, pay the bills and stuff like that. <laughs> So the exploding hard drive didn't take off, but you learned from it. And uh, a while later, you came up with a project that did. Uh, can you tell me a bit about how the Malduino project started to come about? Sure. So it um, actually started after, I think this was after um, Hack5 sent me a field kit. They saw I was making videos on YouTube and they sent me uh, one of their field kits. So I, I did a, an overview video of that and they had the USB rubber ducky in there and I had a lot of fun playing around with that. But I mean, the USB rubber ducky is quite expensive. And back then, an 18-year-old with like zero money, <laughs> I, I wanted something that was much more, um, well, much more cheap, easily reproducible. So I figured that you could do exactly the same thing or more or less the same thing with an Arduino Pro Micro, which you can buy off of eBay for a couple of dollars at most. And yeah, it's, it's, it's quite simple to set up. All you need to do is um, upload the script. There's no extra hardware involved. And um, it went from uh, stage to stage. So I had that. And then I thought, hey, maybe if I add a, add some um, switches to this thing, uh, we can have multiple scripts on there and toggle between them. And then I added an SD card. And I've made videos on each stage of this. You can see those back from 2017. So eventually someone suggested that I put my own product together and I figured out how to design a PCB. At the start, I didn't know anything about PCB design. So the first Malduino ever didn't, did, didn't end up working at all. But <laughs> eventually, eventually I got there and I set up an Indiegogo page and put out some schematics to see if people would gravitate towards it. And people seem to like the idea of um, a, a bad USB built around the, uh, the Arduino project. And yeah, it just kind of took off from there. So for people who might not be familiar with coding as much, can you explain why Arduino is such an attractive language to build this sort of project in? Sure. I mean, the nice thing about um, Arduino is, is that it's probably the most hackable platform on the planet in that uh, a lot of different devices support it. So if you know how to code on code with Arduino, then you can go from make from uh, having LED blink to uh, playing around with ESP microcontrollers. And you can really end up making a, a useful products just with this um, super hackable hobbyist based uh, platform. Yeah. So the nice thing about Arduino also is that for people who are maybe engineers or artists or people who want to control lights or, or just make a prototype of something without having maybe a lot of knowledge of computer science. This is a language that virtually anyone can learn. They frequently teach it to children and is supported on tons and tons and tons of different devices, all the way down to little like Adafruit trinkets and stuff that are meant for making wearable devices up to much more powerful microcontrollers with Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and all the great stuff that you can use for creating both security tools and useful IoT devices. So after porting this over to Arduino, what exactly was the reaction when you started putting it up on Indiegogo? So the overall reaction was overwhelmingly positive. 
I find, um, especially in the hacking community, it's not often people get new toys to play with. So as soon as there's a new toy, people uh, really gravitate towards it and, you know, want to get their hands on it and have some fun. So yeah, overwhelmingly positive. Today, I, I can't remember exactly how many, but there's a good few thousand that have been sold. And um, and yeah, people people seem to really like it. That's awesome. And the difference between this and the USB rubber ducky, which it was kind of based on in concept, is that obviously with Arduino, you can go in and start customizing things from the start because the whole system is kind of open. Whereas the USB rubber ducky kind of seems almost like, you know, it has ducky script, a very simple scripting language. And it really does take some effort to get in and start changing the firmware beyond that because you you need to start knowing a lot more in order to start hacking around on the rubber ducky. While with Arduino, you know, from the start, you kind of have access to the inner workings of everything. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, people have hacked the Malduino. So I mentioned on the Malduino, well, the Malduino Elite, which is the main version of the Malduino now. Um, it has a set of switches and the purpose of the switches is that, well, it's, it's got four of them. So um, you can select up to 16, well, you can store up to 16 different scripts and then switch between them with the set of switches. Now, some people would rather have one script and switch between different variables. So maybe they want to switch between the IP address they're using or some other variable. So they could do that with a set of switches. And it's a bit more effort to program. But of course, Arduino is, is pretty well known and it's, uh, it's pretty easy to get stuck in. So yeah, people have a lot of fun making their own, designing their own implementation. And now that we're 15 minutes in talking about this, I should mention exactly what the device looks like. So this, if you haven't seen it already, looks like a USB thumb drive, basically. It looks like something that you could put a case around and plug into a computer and it would look perfectly normal. And that's another reason why there might be other boards out there that are generic that have like the same chip, for example, but they don't have a lot of the customization, like, you know, a switch to be able to select the payload or programming mode, or, you know, just the the ability to follow along with a well-documented Arduino hardware project. So, you know, these have the advantage of basically just a bunch of attention to detail and the form factor that's a lot more applicable to this sort of attack. Because most of the other things you'll find out there are the wrong size or just look kind of alarming or like something you wouldn't want to stick in your computer. So these actually have the potential to be really easy to prototype uh, different scripts with, maybe change the keyboard type and do all this other stuff uh, while still being able to be kind of a beginner and not need to know as much about going in and messing with the firmware or anything like that. You're a really good salesman, Cody. I should hire you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, this myself. <laughs> but yeah, so if you haven't heard of this before, then that's that's what this is. It's like a USB uh, keystroke injection tool that you could plug into a computer. It'll run a bunch of keystrokes and uh, you can pre-program it so that depending on what the operating system is, you can have all sorts of great scripts run. And the point is, uh, if you can trick the person into plugging it in by maybe, I don't know, putting it in a pen cup or something and have it like hide a window really quickly in the corner and do a bunch of bad stuff. Or if you want to just plug it in to a device that's left unattended, you could just wait until someone goes to the restroom and plug this in. Both will have basically the same effect. Yeah, no, essentially it's um, it's probably the easiest tool to uh, demonstrate uh, pen testing as well, because of course, um, pen testing gets really complicated really quickly, but um, it's really easy to demonstrate a super simple exploit. Hey, look, keyboard uh, input is completely trusted by most computers. There, there, are, there are some OSs that have some restrictions, but on a generic Windows computer, you plug a keyboard in, you can start typing. But of course, um, what the <laughs> what Microsoft don't seem to realize is that um, the keyboard input is a great vector for attacks. 
And it's really simple to demonstrate this by, essentially I like to describe it as having a little elf inside this USB stick, inside this USB keyboard that just really quickly types out whatever the hell you want. And a command prompt is only a few, a few clicks away. So you mentioned this was also inspired by Hack5 sending you a kit. What was Hack5's reaction uh, to this project? Interesting. So um, they, did, they didn't find out for, for a while. And um, initially, I, I didn't expect it to uh, blow up as much as it did. It was just meant to be a, a cool little um, hardware hacking thing. And um, But yeah, eventually, Darren did find out. And he was a little um, on edge, I guess, because he saw it as a competitor to the USB rubber ducky. And he wasn't too enthused. But yeah, I, I explained what I just told you. And he um, kind of understood where I was coming from. I, one of the other things that he didn't really like me using USB rubber ducky in some of the some of the titles and some of the in some of the uh, the thumbnails when talking about um, bad USBs in general, which I guess you can you can kind of understand. It's it's like every time I hear someone saying the word taser when they mean a stun gun, and just like yeah, I know it's like a brand versus a device. Like I I know that, but at a certain point, like everyone uses that term to describe a certain device. So it becomes like, I, I kind of get where he's coming from because it's a brand, you know, and it definitely, it definitely, oh, and a trademark also. But yeah, and it definitely positions you as a competitor. Uh, so I, I get that. But I, I also think that he probably, you know, once he understood the amount of work that went into this project and how much of a community thing it was, that's probably a big piece of why he eventually was okay with it. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, back in, I forget um, <clears throat> what year it was. I think it was the 80s or the 90s or something. Nintendo took out a full page ad um, in some major newspaper, I forget, to explain to people uh, not to use the term Nintendo when talking about generic game consoles, because that's what people, people were using the word Nintendo to refer to just any generic game console, which um, seems kind of, you know, uninteresting, like whatever. But over time, if people keep on doing that, then you can actually lose the trademark if a word just becomes generic. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Okay, so there's a reason. Like there's a reason. Yeah, yeah. No, there is There is an actual reason. So I, I don't hold, I don't begrudge uh, Darren for sending me a message saying, you know, hey, my trademark lawyer just got in touch. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, and, and in fact, when I changed... Um, the titles from USB rubber ducky to bad USB, I, I did get a massive uh, boost in views uh, as the algorithm, you know, re rejigged itself and reorientated it. So yeah, it, it worked out for everyone. It was a win-win. Good. That's good. Yeah. And I mean, fair disclosure, I also work with Darren and I, I think I've heard his side of the, the story as well, where he thought it was just a, a complete ripoff of his product until he saw that you had actually done the work yourself. And this was something that you'd like built up and like really like put a lot of work into. So yeah, it, it was interesting hearing both sides of this event because uh, yeah, I, I know that uh, it can be so I, I'm sure you know, now, it can be so difficult to like scale a product and then you know, the first thing you see is like someone either copying it or just a, a, an exact replica of it appears in China. Uh, mm. Spaceun, aka uh, Stefan, frequently has this problem where someone will immediately copy his uh, one of his designs or something he does with his friend Travis and then make a cheaper version uh, and sell it, often from the same factory <laughs> that like produces it. Oh, yeah. It's it's almost inevitable, though. I, I don't know, seeing all these, um, now you get uh, like these Malduino copies, I guess, coming up um, in China on AliExpress and eBay. And I know part of me is almost um, flattered, I guess, in that, hey, all these people have started selling this this one thing like, because of me. Like I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of feel like that's kind of cool. <laughs>
So can you tell me a bit more about the final evolution of this? You went from the original Malduino and now we are at the Malduino Elite. What exactly is different about that? Um, sure. So the original um, Malduino, I guess the Malduino Lite, was just, um, it was just only able to hold a single script. And the idea was it had one switch on it where you could select between programming mode and execution mode. But the limitation with that, other than only having one script, is that um, it could only hold 32K uh, in terms of the script. And that's including all the overhead as well, such as the bootloader and all that, all that juicy stuff. So you couldn't really have a massive script on there. So you can only have very small scripts. So yeah, the Malduino Elite, the f not, not final evolution. There, there's a couple more generations left, I think. So the current generation of the Malduino is the Malduino Elite. And do you have any favorite payloads that people have developed for this that you'd like to share? I could probably think of some interesting ones that would run on this now that I know what uh, it supports, but I imagine the community has probably <laughs> contributed some interesting uh, ideas. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I guess being caught up in all the other stuff to do with Maltuino, it's actually been a few months since I've actually used a, a Maltuino for its actual purpose. But um, one of my favorite uh, scripts I wrote with the Maltuino was um, Windows NTLM grabber. So you would plug in, as in, uh, just to explain, that's the, um, the password hash that um, Windows uses to store your computer's password. So the idea is, is that you'd plug in this Maltuino and then it would grab the hash of your computer's password and then it would send it off to um, a web server. And then from that web server, I could just take it and go and crack it. And if I remember correctly, NTLM hashes are pretty easy to crack pretty quick. So yeah, I think that was my favorite one. But that video did get removed from YouTube and I got a strike, so. Really, really? Yeah, that, that was the first proper strike I got. They, they didn't like that one. So I should ask, creating security content on YouTube is quite difficult. Often, if you're too aggressive, you know, for SEO, you really want to be edgy and you really want to go straight to the point and you want to use the right words that people are searching for. But YouTube has gotten quite strict about the kind of content that they allow on the platform and they've updated their security policies to be very restrictive now about the kind of content that they can um, basically permit around hacking. So I know that on, on my channel's end, I've had to adjust a lot of different things and uh, go from how to hack this to, to suddenly being more like how hackers do this and even cut back some of the content entirely so that we're hosting it elsewhere. So what kind of, what's your experience been like with getting strikes or, or, or what kind of content have you noticed has triggered YouTube to uh, take action or, or try to censor it? Well, from my perspective, I think you can get away with almost anything as long as you package it in a way which isn't too edgy. So avoiding using the word hacker in your title, I, I, I find as soon as I use the word hacker, I get instantly demonetized, though that is great for SEO. So, so yeah, I just think you have to be very clever with the titles, uh, the descriptions, what keywords you include, the thumbnails, and make sure the first 30 seconds to a minute of your video is very vanilla, I guess. So the person reviewing the video isn't going to be um, put off or, or think it's too edgy. Uh, th though I, I would make it clear is that a lot of YouTube's decisions are done by an AI. So if, if you try and be clever with the titles and the descriptions, then I find you could be mostly okay. So provided that you market it correctly, you can still cover controversial stuff. It's just a matter of making sure the sensors aren't seeing it. I think also, do you think it's that they're inexperienced or they don't know enough about the content to know what's malicious and what's educational? 
Oh yeah, um, for sure. So, say for example, you made a video on uh, like a simple buffer overflow exploit. A person reviewing the, a video isn't going to know anything about buffer overflow exploits. And you know, fair enough, it's not their job to know about buffer overflow exploits. But if, if the video title is um, buffer overflow exploit, um, how it's done or whatever, then you're probably going to get away with it. But if it's something like how I, yeah, how, how I hacked Windows with this one simple <laughs> trick, you're, you're done for. Like it's, it's all gone. It's, it's done. And do you find that uh, content around social media is also tricky, like uh, hacking Instagram or Instagram passwords, anything like that? I wouldn't know because I haven't, I haven't edged that much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I imagine it would be. I imagine it would be. So for someone who hasn't worked with USB rubber ducky or a tool like this before, exactly what would they need to do to get started? Sure. So in terms of the Malduino or an Arduino that has Malduino-esque capabilities in form of the Pro Micro, it's super easy. All you need is the device itself. You don't need any extra tools, any extra nothing. You just need to... Well, I, you need your computer set up, of course. So you need to download the, um, the Arduino IDE and then uh, plug the device in. And so now you're going to want to find a script, uh, something to upload. So for this, if you go to malduino.com, I do actually have a um, script converter. So this allows you to put in ducky script and then uh, press a convert button and it will convert it to an Arduino script, which you can then download and upload it to the device. That also means you get access to tons and tons and tons of community scripts that have already been contributed for the USB rubber ducky just by converting them through this. So it means you also don't have to code stuff from scratch. You can easily take advantage of stuff that the existing community has already created. And that's awesome. Oh, for sure. I mean, if you go to, if you just Google USB rubber ducky payloads, there's a whole, you know, slew of uh, payloads that are available online for free for you to go in, edit yourself and, you know, play around with. And again, all you need to do is stick those in the converter, press a button, and it'll convert um, the rubber ducky script into Arduino code, which you can then just download and upload to the device. And that's pretty much it. Now the device is all set up and you're ready to, um, ready to just plug it into a computer and have some fun, essentially. So what is the process like of developing a script? Like what would you say for a beginner who's writing their own script uh, would be the way of getting a successful script running on a target? Sure. So I think um, in terms of writing your own script, um, one of the things to keep in mind is delays. It's something you really forget about in terms of like when you press the Windows key on your computer, it takes a fraction of a second for that to come up. So when you're writing your script after each line of code, it helps to have maybe a 50 millisecond delay or something like that. So delay 50 would be the code you'd use for that. In most cases, if, if a script isn't working, that's the problem, especially when you plug the device in to a computer for the first time. A computer, a computer might take a few seconds to recognize the device and um, uh, to get it ready. So a few seconds delay at the at the start of a script is great. And scripts are really ducky scripts are really easy to make uh, simply because you can run them manually just with a keyboard. So if you can type it, then it can go in a script. So it's, it's really easy to figure out what is possible and what isn't possible. And also for complete, complete beginners, there's plenty of example scripts and things to base off of. So if you want to make your own script, you don't always have to start from scratch. You can take one of the existing ones and start tweaking it. 
And especially if you're working with a different operating system, something I would also mention is you have to match this to whatever the operating system of the target is, not whatever operating system you just happen to be running. If you make a script that works perfectly on your own computer and then you're just shocked that it works differently on someone else's computer, it's probably because you know, you're using a different version of Windows or they're on a Mac and you're on a PC. So writing a script that works on the target's operating system is also a big important thing. But this also doesn't need to be used for purely malicious purposes. This is also a tool that you can use to automate really tedious, annoying tasks, like setting up a Raspberry Pi or doing other things that you have to do over and over again. Oh, true. I mean, you, you've taken my point there. I had that had, to, had that written down here. Um, I actually, um, I, do, I do have people buy Malduinos from me who then tell me, yeah, no, this is great. I'm, I'm, a sister, I'm a sysadmin. I use this for setting up Chromebooks and I just go around to each Chromebook. I stick it in, it does its thing. And there you go. It's, it's it's perfect for those kinds of people. And I didn't even think of that until uh, a few months into I started selling them. But, but yeah, no, it's it's um, insanely useful. And even for people who um, I had one guy who who uses them for just um, keeping computers awake. So every minute or so, it will just press the control key. And when he wants to keep um, a client's computer awake and have it not go to sleep and have it, you know, them have to enter their password again. He'll just plug it in and it'll just keep the computer awake. So it, it has a whole range of uses. That's super cool. <laughs> That's super cool. So also, this is a hardware project. And you mentioned that you know you designed the PCB on this originally. What was it like actually creating like a physical product for someone who hasn't gone through that process? Ooh, it's a big learning curve. I didn't know anything about hardware or creating my own product to begin with. So creating a PCB, uh, the first PCB I created, I didn't even know that you could create a PCB with multiple layers. And for people who don't know too much about PCBs, essentially circuit boards, but um, it's possible to have different layers. So if you want to have um, two different traces, two different wires cross each other, you can have multiple layers which will allow you to do that, like a 3D uh, circuit board. However, I, I didn't know that, so I tried to put everything on a single layer. <laughs> So eventually I figured out multi-layered PCBs was a thing. And after a lot of back and forth, getting prototypes made and um, soldering them together, and I had to learn how to solder at this point because I, I didn't know anything about uh, man like you know, large-scale manufacturing of products. So uh, initially I thought I could buy... Um, one of these, um, I, I don't know exactly what you call them. It's like a, an open top barbecue oven kind of a thing. It's like hot plates, just a massive hot plate. That's what it was. And, and I figured I could um, uh, reflow PCBs on that. Uh, that didn't work. Uh, it, it actually went horribly. I remember because the Indiegogo campaign, the initial campaign for the, uh, the Malduino went so well that I had to make way more Malduinos than I had thought. So um, <laughs> the first Malduino I ever made looked awful, looked like Frankenstein's monster, and it took me an hour to make. I almost cried <laughs> looking at the final product because of how awful it was. <laughs> what, did they, what did they look like? Well, the USB connector was bent. There was a lot of flux everywhere, a lot of um, stray solder about on the board. The switches weren't straight. And of course, the, um, the chip itself, the Atmega 32U4, the main chip that the Malduino uses, its pins are 400 microns apart, I think, 0.4 millimeters. So you have to be really careful to not have anything touch each other, because if you have two connections that touch each other, that short, then that creates a big problem. That, that, that's really not good. The whole device can 
uh, just not work. So um, eventually I figured it out. I figured out how soldering works and I powered through at least a, a couple thousand Malduinos over the course of a few months until I eventually figured out that uh, China exists and you can get manufacturing done, you know, quite cheaply. So um, eventually I got around to that. That's a whole other game. I mean, finding a reliable assembler in China to assemble your, your product, your, your circuit board, was a massive, a massive pain. If you want to find supply that does it cheaply, it's a massive pain. If you've got a ton of money, then, you know, whatever. When I was trying to get it outsourced, I found five different companies in China that could make the Malduino, and I got them all to make a run of 50. So I got, I, I received all the Malduinos, and of three or five of the suppliers had a failure, the Malduinos had a failure rate of over 30%. Whoa. Yeah, and it, it was crazy. 30% of the Malduinos just didn't work, or they looked so bad, I just knew they wouldn't work without even giving them a go. Well, so this got into like a global sourcing problem where like what started out as a hobby is now like you have to do the same job that people who like fabricate like PCBs for like at scale have to do just, oh, yeah. just to avoid a huge failure rate and basically losing, you know, a, a substantial amount of your money. Oh, yeah. And um, I, I like it because it's, it's a lot of fun. I mean, software projects are cool. But um, I mean, you can put a web, you know, anybody could put a website out in a, in a matter of minutes. But if you want to get a product made and, you know, have it go through the design, the testing process and, you know, have something somewhat decent at the end of it, there's a lot of different processes in there. It's a lot more involved and it, it's a lot more hands on, which I kind of like. But yeah, in the end, I whittled it down to two suppliers and I got a, a round of 100 made from each of them. And I just picked the cheaper one of the two, essentially. So finding that supplier, that supplier I now cherish because <laughs> I know they can make things without screwing it up. How did you initially start this process? Like how, if, if I had a PCB idea I wanted to get made, how would I pick these companies or find these companies to start trying them out? Sure. So I, me, I just went on Alibaba, which is basically Chinese eBay, but wholesale. So if you want to buy any, if you want to buy a thousand pens, you'll go to Alibaba. If you want to buy a thousand frozen yogurts. You, you go to Alibaba. You could, they sell anything on Alibaba in bulk. So I, I, I just went on there and found five suppliers that had a decent reputation and contacted them. Like via, via email? Well, it's via their own messaging service on Alibaba. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, yeah, I'll just hit them up like, hi, I need this making. How much can you do it for? And because um, there's, there's so many complications in making a physical product that if you think you've thought of everything, you, you really haven't. And um, yeah, that's the way to do it. Just, just start messaging people. And, and of course, there are a lot of um, really well-known companies that will uh, that, that have um, presences in America and Europe who can do exactly the same thing, but those are very expensive. And it's just, uh, if, if you, if you want to get a product out there that isn't going to be super expensive, then you have to uh, bend the rules, I guess, find something you know cheaper. So after you had a company together, then you found one that presumably didn't have an awful failure rate. What happened then? So after I found that company, I was kind of set, I guess, because they were able to produce exactly the same thing I could, but just without me having to lift a finger. And at this point, I just get them in. I program them, clean them up a bit because uh, a lot of these Chinese manufacturing houses aren't too 
great on uh, cleaning flux off boards. So I usually, so sometimes I have to sit there with a toothbrush cleaning the board with a bit of isopropyl alcohol. Not the toothbrush I, I actually use, by the way, but <laughs> eventually I get them looking good enough. I can just packet them up. And then I, I now have a third party shipper in the UK, which I ship products off to in bulk and they'll send it off from there, which is a lot better than me having to spend an hour every morning packing boxes. That got old really quick, having to go to the post office once or twice a day with a bunch of boxes in my bag having um, carrier bags hanging off my uh, bicycle handles. It sounds like you really have to be passionate about a project in order to bring it all the way to existence. Like a lot of people you know, have ideas and they might want to make a prototype, but actually making it available for the community to purchase is, it sounds like a ton of work, not just you know programming and creating the thing, but also doing a bunch of unrelated business and logistics stuff just to make sure that you're able to supply it reasonably at, at a rate that's not going to be embarrassing when people plug it in and it just doesn't work. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think in the hacking community in particular, I guess you could say a bit of a lack of business now in that there's so many really interesting projects out there that people never really see because people just don't hear about it or people don't put it out there well enough. So yeah, it's, it's something you just have to really take a bit of a, a leap of faith on and um, in, in order to get out there. And the return for you has been a lot of recognition from the community and hopefully some good sales to help support your projects. And you mentioned also this is a way where you've kind of framed this as people who like your content or who wants more good content can pick this up as a way of supporting you because it's also super easy to follow along with your guides with the right hardware. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, initially I had a Patreon, but since the content I make is so, I want to say all over the place, I'm not that consistent. People are going to support me. I'd much rather them get something in return, something they can use and enjoy as opposed to behind the scenes picture, which it might work for some people, but for me, I'd much rather them get something in return. Yeah. And I would never want someone to see behind my studio. At least your studio is interesting. I don't, I don't really have anything. <laughs> on my so once you got this out to the community, you mentioned that a lot of people started using it in interesting ways. What could someone do with this or, or what for someone who's new to this sort of attack tool, might be an interesting use case or, or way they could get started trying this out on something that would have a big effect. Something that would have a big effect. Hmm. So I, th I think when people are starting out, you really have to make things as simple as possible. So if, if someone doesn't really know what Malduino is, or I want to demonstrate it to someone who's not really all that techie, one of the easiest things to demonstrate is a Rickroll prank, I guess, because it's super easy and um, it sticks in people's minds. And all you have to do for that script is to um, open a run prompt and then just type chrome.exe space and then the, uh, the URL to YouTube or wherever it is. So it might seem a bit underwhelming, but if someone's completely new, I think that's something that really kind of grabs their attention in an easy way. And can I suggest a really nasty one that I've worked with myself? I'll go for it. So one of my favorite scripts is very simple. I really like Wi-Fi related stuff. So all it does is it injects a new Wi-Fi network. So it, it basically saves a malicious Wi-Fi network as trusted. So I can de-auth the computer and then it will automatically connect to my malicious network. Ah. Then it creates a cron tab where every 60 seconds it either creates a netcat backdoor 
or we'll call uh, grabify.link with the available Wi-Fi networks that are nearby. So I can get the geolocation even through a VPN by paying attention to what networks the computer is near and then just geolocating those networks persistently. And then with the Netcat backdoor, depending on the way the computer is configured, I can either execute commands directly into the in bash or some such nonsense like that. So with a couple seconds of access, I can get backdoor access to the computer. And then if that doesn't work, I can get the computer to tell me where it is, even if the person's using a VPN, by calling grabify.link and passing the nearby Wi-Fi networks as the refer link. So that's my that's my favorite script. I that my script pales in, compar in comparison. <laughs> I made it, and then I'm like, I don't like this script because I don't want it in my computer. The, the meaner the more interesting it is. I think so. And you know, the, the point is, of course, anything that you can do sitting behind the computer in a couple of minutes, you can compress into you know a 10 second script. Oh yeah, no, it's 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 it's. I'm I'm almost surprised that uh, this attack vector hasn't been cleaned up already. There are some ways of mitigating it. There are some programs you can download and install that will just simply detect when you're typing too fast and block <laughs> block the typing input, which is probably the easiest way of fixing the problem. There are other things you can do. You can set up rules such that it would only trust um, a keyboard with a certain signature, but th there isn't a really standardized solution to the problem. Mm. And, um, I, I don't see one on the horizon. That's interesting. So a friend of mine is working on a project where keyboards would have a hardware authentication key and they would actually authenticate to a server and would be able to like encrypt communication. That might be one way of solving the problem, but severe overkill. But I mean, long term, we're going to have to get over the fact that anybody can plug something into a USB port and the computer is not so good right now at authenticating what it is. If we get to the point where these attacks are so cheap and so widespread, we might need to look at keyboards that are able to prove that they are who they say they are when they're plugged in just to avoid these sorts of attacks because as you mentioned like heuristically you can you can look for a keyboard that's typing too quickly or then have to adjust that up and down because i did this presentation at a hackerspace in munich where i was showing the digispark and how that works and one person raised their hand and they're like yeah we have to worry about this at my company so we have this program that you know locks people out if they're typing too fast and we have this one programmer that triggers it all the time because he just types too <laughs> fast. So they had to adjust this multiple times and make it slower and slower and or faster and faster until finally the guy wasn't triggering it as often. But yeah, the, there's ways of doing this. But you know, for one, there's always going to be someone that like forces you to change the bar a little bit or customizes or, or tweak it. So it's not always just, you know, you install it and it automatically works. And then also there's ways of getting around it too, you know, by loading a script that has the majority of the typing already configured, like especially if the laptop is already connected to the internet, you know, you can just do a regular speed command where you just very regular speedly download the payload and have it run without worrying about triggering a heuristic defense, like just waiting for timing. But, you know, that's all really interesting because these attacks are difficult to plan for. You never know when someone's going to buy, let's say, a monitor that has a open USB port that's facing towards the public and then put it out in a receptionist office. You don't know who's going to plug something into that port. So having different ways of detecting these sorts of attacks so that's really important as this starts to get cheaper and more easy for beginners to program. 
Oh yeah, I, I think our main solace is that most people just aren't interesting enough or aren't, aren't worth enough to be able to, to warrant going out of your way to plug a USB stick into their computer. It requires a, a very determined, involved, you know, person to go and go behind your computer and do this kind of thing. So most people, I guess, don't have anything to worry about. Where it becomes more saucy is when it gets to the corporate level. And um, once you're in a corporation, you can wreak, you know, all kinds of havoc. So... See, so, so yeah, I think corporations are way more at risk, though. Uh, if you're going to cons, you know, plug up those USB ports. <laughs> exactly. And of course, I do have to mention, because this is the Verona Security Tools podcast, that if you're a larger business that has Veronis, one of the things that you can also do is start looking for suspicious behavior based on user patterns. So if somebody from finance is suddenly logged into a computer in the developer group or vice versa, or somebody's accessing data that they've never accessed in their job role before. Those are all also defenses that aren't as simple as just you know, monitoring for keyboard speed, but would detect sudden abnormal behavior coming from a station that's never done that sort of stuff before. So most modern businesses do have defenses against this sort of behavior. If someone were to plug in a USB stick like this into a computer that was protected with one of Veronis's tools, generally, if it started to do something malicious like encrypt files or started to access resources that were outside the user's scope of work, it would immediately be detected. So those are things that are monitored by most modern solutions, especially Veronis. So there are ways of defeating these sorts of attacks or at least the result of them. But hardware mitigation, like having keyboards that can identify themselves and be trusted or other sorts of things like maybe only allowing certain keyboards to connect are also ways that organizations could probably mitigate the problem of somebody having open access to just plug something into a USB port. Because as I mentioned, there's some pretty nasty scripts. If I can force your computer to join a rogue Wi-Fi network and then start controlling your computer remotely. I only need a second to implant that script. And then I can take my time and start doing a lot more involved stuff, you know, from a distance, but with the knowledge that I can force your computer to connect to me whenever I want. I had a look at the Veronis, the whole Veronis thing before I came on it. It, it looks pretty cool. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that was a thing. I, I don't know much about corporate level security, but having a system that just detects what behavior is normal and what isn't piqued my interest. Yeah, it was super cool. Uh, when I learned about the kinds of attacks we're talking about is like, let's say that somebody at an organization that doesn't have a tool like this leaves their computer unattended. And this is a salesperson and somebody walks by and plugs in a, a drive, just curious to see what they can get off this computer. And it turns out that the company has provided open access to every single file. So they can see finance, they can see corporate, everything. They can see maybe patients, medical records. They can see like credit cards. A hacker would love that. That would be their best, most sweetest payday to get access to a corporate network where everything is left open. Veronis's core product basically classifies all the data and is like, all right, does some guy who's in sales need to see patients like medical data? Absolutely not. So first, all the data would be restricted to the people who need to have access to it. So there wouldn't be as big of an impact, even if the computer was infected. And then if the data had already been reclassified, so only people who needed access to it had access to it, even that person's access to the data would be monitored. So if they started doing something like copying a bunch of files and sending them off site or encrypting a bunch of files, that would be detected immediately, as well as people accessing resources way outside their scope, like, you know, logging into a coworker's computer or doing 
doing something that they've never done before. If you're a big organization, there's actually a ton of tools that go above and beyond you know, simple monitoring for the types of little slip ups, like letting someone plug in a USB drive. You could still theoretically full on attack someone's corporate computer and get into the network. And the second you start touching stuff that you're not supposed to or that that user hasn't touched before, which could be pretty boring. You know, somebody who's not an experienced attacker who doesn't know how to work with those resources and pivot and be all sneaky and low, they wouldn't have much of a chance of doing a lot of damage before they were detected. So of course, a lot of businesses don't do this. So there's also tons of places where if you got access to one computer, you have access to the whole network and suddenly you can traverse through tons and tons of files and get access to you know credit card data and stuff that like that person might have literally no need to have access to, but they just don't have the capacity to like classify all the, the files that they have. Oh yeah, it reminds me of my old school actually, where they had a, a shared drive, but the shared drive was the same drive for the students as it was for the teachers. And of course they made certain folders uh, read only so the students couldn't mess them up. But for some reason, you know, they, they didn't realize that students may be interested in uh, the answers to certain exams. That were... <laughs> so um, one other thing I did do at school, it just reminded me of it, was um, our shared drive only had a, a limit of two terabytes. And, uh, you know, uh, copy and paste uh, <laughs> goes a long way. It just blocks up the entire drive. And I think the uh, I, I think the school had a lot of uh, technical issues that day. But um, I, I won't go too hard on my 13-year-old self there. <laughs> yeah, well, it's definitely safe to say that open access like that is a problem. And it makes a momentary lapse of security, like having someone get physical access to a corporate computer, a pretty big deal. So if you are working in a business where you're worried about this sort of thing, there's a bunch of different options out there. You can go with a hardware-based solution where you're looking for things that are typing too quickly, or you can go with a software-based solution like Veronis, for example, that allows you to identify when someone is doing something malicious on your network or is doing something completely outside their scope of work, like their computer's been compromised and it's suddenly encrypting things or uploading things off-site that shouldn't be ever taken off-site. So this isn't a huge problem for people with the right resources, but it is a serious one for people who are careless. So these sorts of tools should be understood by everyone because this tool is very cheap. Pretty much anyone can learn to program it. So the bar to this sort of attack is really not that high. And it's drawing attention to a pretty fundamental vulnerability when it comes to human interface devices. What I will say is, uh, whilst I, I hope that, uh, you know, the, the hole gets patched up, you know, for the sake of Maldwino, let's lit little hole, let's, let's keep a bit there. I think that pretty much wraps this up. Thank you so much for coming on today. And if people wanted to continue following your projects, what's the best way for them to follow you? The best way is youtube.com forward slash Satonic, S-E-Y-T-O-N-I-C. I'm also on Twitter by the same name. And yeah, those are the two best places. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Security Tools podcast. We hope to talk to you again sometime. And if you have any ideas for this podcast, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Cody Kinsey. And if you want to check out more information on Veronis and how we can help keep your data secure, you can check out the great resources on our blog and our cyber attack workshop. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>